From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young, and this is Earth Eats. On today's show, we have coffee and cookies. Sounds like your office holiday party? Not quite. We visit a cookie baking workshop for kids at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, and we take a bike ride with an outdoor enthusiast for some coffee outside. That's all coming up after the news. Welcome back, Renee. What's the news? Hi, Kate. Large-scale livestock operations could be a thing of the past, if presidential hopeful Senator Cory Booker has anything to say about it. His new bill, the Farm System Reform Act, calls for a moratorium on new and expanding concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. A CAFO is defined as livestock operations with at least 1,000 cattle, 2,500 hogs, or 82,000 laying hens. The bill comes as the American Public Health Association called for a ban on new and expanding CAFOs as new national polls indicate the public's desire for policy protections against the large-scale operations and as CAFOs continue to expand in states like South Dakota. Lawmakers have called for a moratorium on CAFOs in the past, but the Farm System Reform Act expands on that idea in a few important ways. For instance, it seeks to phase out existing CAFOs by 2040 by allocating $100 billion over 10 years to help farmers transition to more sustainable production systems. The bill also lays the legal and financial responsibility for the environmental and quality of life problems of large-scale livestock production at the feet of the meatpacking industry. Under the bill, People living near a CAFO who have experienced a reduced quality of life or decline in property value can bring civil suits against members of the meatpacking industry. The bill also reinstates country of origin labeling for beef and pork and will require it for dairy products as well. On December 13th, the White House announced the beginning of a much-awaited trade deal with China in the 11th hour before a new round of tariffs were to take effect. The Phase 1 agreement sidestepped $100 billion in tariffs slated to take effect last Sunday and lifts several other tariffs. The move would require that China buy more U.S. agricultural products. Details on how much and when have been thin and contradictory. The White House has said the agreement would be signed in January, but China said even those details are still under negotiation. China did not announce specific numbers for the deal, saying only that it would significantly increase purchases based on market forces and World Trade Organization rules. The White House fact sheet about the first phase of the agreement lists no numbers at all. The U.S. said the deal would end China's pressure on foreign companies to transfer technology to domestic companies. China's version omits any mention of this. The announcement comes after a 19-month wrestling match between the U.S. and China over trade practices Trump said are unfair to American companies and workers. The White House has imposed tariffs on China's machinery, chemicals, food, clothing, and other industries. China struck back by slashing purchases of American farm goods such as soybeans and pork. That's this week's news. Thanks to Taylor Killo and Chad Bouchard for those stories. And thank you, Renee Reed. You're welcome, Kate. I mentioned last week how I like to make cookies around the holidays. 
This week, we're visiting a cookie-making workshop with kids. Making cookies is a great thing to do with kids of all ages. You can keep it simple or go all out. And even the youngest children can probably pour a cup of flour into a bowl or press a cookie cutter into some rolled out dough. Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss are nutrition and youth educators at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard in Bloomington, Indiana. The Hub, as the locals call it, is a food pantry and community food resource center that offers regular gardening and cooking workshops for children and adults. They've got a spacious teaching kitchen, and this year they offered a special pre-holiday cookie baking workshop just for kids. About 10 young bakers and a handful of parents lined the edges of the tall metal tables in the classroom. They had rolling pins, baking sheets, and measuring cups at each station. They taught three different cookie recipes with some of the steps done ahead of time to move so, things along. We're start by making the modern sugar cookie. To save time, we made the dough ahead, but this is a very basic cookie recipe, and we'll send it home with you. Alyssa taught the pinwheel recipe, which included specific skills and techniques. So we're going to start by measuring our chocolate. We need two ounces of chocolate, so we're going to use our scale. And we're going to measure out two ounces. Use a double boiler. Has anyone used a double boiler before? And then we're going to put a pot on top. Does everyone get a chance to see the water? They accomplished a lot in those two hours. And by the end of the class, each family went home with freshly baked cookies, plus some dough and instructions for finishing at home. All right, what are the favorites? Peanut butter. One, two, three. Cookies! <laughs> After the smoke cleared and the interns were finishing the last of the dishes, I sat down with the two instructors. My name is Georgia O'Connor, and I am the youth educator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. What was happening in here today? A lot of kids baking a lot of cookies. Kids with their hands in the dough and kids using their hands to mix up cookie dough, rolling cookie dough, learning new techniques like baking skills such as leveling off and sifting two different ways whether you use a sifter or a whisk the order in which you bake things so dry ingredients separate then wet ingredients is this the first time you've done a cookie workshop with kids yes absolutely the first time <laughs> so you regularly do cook with kids though right yes usually we'll do kids cook 4:15 to 5 tuesdays and thursdays we usually cook vegetable-based dishes. We do some baking as well, but not as often as we do the vegetable dishes. And that's more of a drop-in program, so it's yes. a little bit quicker, too? Yes. So you wouldn't have time for a big baking project? No, we try to keep the recipes for kids' cook really simple, things that you could duplicate at home quite easily and that kids could actually participate in. We just use fewer ingredients. So this was a little bit of an undertaking. Yes, it was, but it was fun, and I would do it again in a heartbeat. How many cookie recipes did you make today? We made three. We made modern sugar cookies and peanut butter cookies, and then our last was a Chicago pinwheel cookie. Can you tell me anything about the peanut butter cookie recipe? That peanut butter recipe has been around for a long time. I was about 21 years old, and I found it on the back of a Domino's sugar box. <laughs> Wasn't much of a cook then, but I loved that recipe. It was chewy and crisp at the same time. And so it's one of my favorite. And it calls for like a cup of peanut butter, which makes it even better. <laughs> 
So you've stuck with that all this time. Stuck with it, haven't changed a bit on it. Just doubled the batch is all I do, <laughs> double the recipe. Why do you think cookies are a good thing to do with kids? Or either of you can answer that. I love cookies. They're hands-on. There's a lot of technique involved in them. They're really fun and easy to do with kids. They bake quickly, and they're perfect for gift-giving any time of year, and they're great. Could you say your full name? Yes, Alyssa Weiss. I am the education coordinator here at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. I'm wondering about the pinwheel recipe. Is this something that comes from you? Is this? Sure, yeah. I'm from Chicago, and there was an old cookie manufacturing company called Maurice Linnell. One of their cookies that they would make that was a classic was this chocolate and vanilla pinwheel cookie with these red sprinkles around the outside. They were the kind of cookies that you get in the tin with the shortbread cookie with the little cherry in the middle. And they closed down a few years ago, and so the bakery I used to work at kind of brought them back, and it reminds me of Chicago. And so there's a specific color of sprinkles on the outside. Yes, classic red-pink color. Interesting. (laughs) What is your vision or your goal for what you have in mind when you do a workshop like this with kids? Well, typically our cooking classes with kids are only 45 minutes, and so you can't do a lot in 45 minutes with kids. So one of the reasons was a longer session to do something that would be like we've done a pasta workshop for the kids, and that would take a lot longer than 45 minutes. So that was one of the reasons. We also thought that parents might stick around a little bit more, and they have. They've stuck around and started helping their kids do the cooking as well, and so that makes it kind of fun to have a family-oriented project. So, Okay, so what if somebody says, well, why are you teaching kids how to make these sweets with sugar in them, and this isn't very healthy, and I just feel like you should be teaching them how to cook with vegetables. We want to use fresh ingredients. Instead of store-bought cookies, the homemade cookies taste so much better. They're fresher. They don't have all the preservatives, and I don't think I've bought a store-bought cookie in several years, and part of it is just because I think they taste better, and they're better for you. They're just great. And so all of the cooking lessons that happen here, they're not just focused on super healthy eating. Some of it's just about cooking. Yeah, it's about cooking and coming together and building community and using our hands and tasting and kind of associating conversation and community with eating and whole foods. Do you find it challenging to work with large groups of kids like this when you're trying to get everybody to focus on a project? It's the end of the day. They've been in school all day. Like, How is that for you? It's bittersweet. I mean, it can get chaotic and you can, in your mind, be like, oh, whoa, what are we doing here? But then you realize this is kids are enjoying it. They're having a good time. And this is kids having a good time. They are chaotic when they're together in community. So I love it. How do you feel about working with a group of kids? Same. I think that it can be hectic, but also very fun. And I also think, to add to what Georgia said, that do I necessarily think they'll all be able to go home and start a recipe from start to finish? No, but I think it's also about building incremental skills and exposure to it and experience of doing the thing and having fun while doing it. And that is going to create a desire to continue to bake and cook, even if it's not an automatic, I've learned a thing and now I can go do it. It'll be built into their childhood and experience of cooking and baking. The other thing that I was thinking about that so many 
things that I've been to around the holidays where there's there's like a craft mm. or there's cookie baking in you know, Mrs. Claus's workshop and you go in it and it's usually like a store-bought cookie and you decorate it with store-bought icing and sprinkles maybe yeah yeah <laughs> and that's your cookie baking and so just to to have this chance to do not just one but three recipes from scratch all the ingredients that's kind of a rare thing kids don't usually get that kind of experience. It's true. It's fun to build in these other skills that kids have of varying levels and have the kids work together too, which is always great to see an older kid working with a younger kid and learning about measurements and learning about all the other sciences associated with baking. What are some other workshops that you have coming up? Let's see, we have a pie workshop. In January, we're gonna do some winter stew workshops. We've done tortillas popcorn, all sorts of stuff. That was Georgia O'Connor and Alyssa Weiss of Mother Hubbard's Cupboard. You'll find all three of these cookie recipes, the modern sugar, the peanut butter, and the Chicago pinwheel, on the Earth Eats website, eartheats.org. Production support comes from Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent with Personal Financial Services, assisting businesses and individuals with tax preparation and planning for over 15 years. More at PersonalFinancialServices.net and insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Resch Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. trucker. All right. And you have several bikes for different yeah. applications? Some of them duplicate. Have you ever heard of this coffee nuring? What about coffee outside? My guest this week, River Bailey, is going to fill us in on the trend. In fact, he's taking us along for the ride. We met up at River's place on the north side of Indianapolis. He lives with his wife and daughter in a lovely neighborhood of winding roads, mature trees, and handsome mid-century ranch dwellings. We snake through the neighborhood, cut between two houses to find a trail through a patch of woods. A trail littered with golf ball-sized walnuts, I might add. Tricky to navigate on a bike if you're, well, basically if you're me and you're not used to trail riding in the first place, but I manage. It's a shortcut that lets us avoid some busy roads. We still end up crossing two major roadways before we turn onto the Monon Trail heading south. The Monon is a 27-mile path that follows a former section of the Chicago, Indianapolis, and Louisville Railway. The Rails to Trails path runs from the town of Sheridan in the north, south through Carmel, Broad Ripple, 
and into downtown Indianapolis. It's smooth sailing once we hit the Monon. And on this November afternoon, the trail is lined with the colors of an Indiana autumn. The air is crisp and we definitely need gloves, but all in all, it's a great day for a ride. After a couple of miles of easy cycling, we cross the White River, then turn off the trail into a quiet park. We stop at a couple of wooden benches arranged to look out over the river. The woods along the bank are flecked in shades of gold and brown. We are here so that River can show me his coffee outside routine. I'm River Bailey, a biking enthusiast and coffee-making outside person. He pulls a stylish boxy bag from the wire basket attached to the front of his bike. A walled basket, I later learned. They have a following. Three different devices, coffee-making devices. And I brought a cup for you and a cup for me. This is one of the things we could use called an AeroPress. Kind of a trendy little coffee-making device for a single cup of coffee nowadays. And I think we'll do pour-overs. This particular pour-over is called a Helix. It just folds flat and then... You'll see it expands like so. Oh, that's nice. So it's like the cone for yeah, a cone Melita or something, but it's really compact and lightweight. Yep. It's made of wire and it collapses. This is our stove, which is just a little pocket rocket. Here's our kettle. Just traditionally used for camping, mostly they're titanium for backpacking and stuff. It's a little titanium kettle and cups. You could use anything though, it doesn't have to be titanium. And this little pocket rocket stove is really awesome. It just also collapses as you can see and then expands. And then you just screw it on top of your fuel can canister. The type of fuel for this camping stove is called Isopro. It's a blend of isobutane and propane and it comes in a squat so canister that connects directly to the tiny stove piece. He's got a small kettle full of water, and the camp stove is assembled. Then, right. so you don't need a lighter. Got this thing. This okay, so like it a, looks like a little key almost. Yeah, and it's just a, a fire starter. It's just a little... Like a metal and flint kind yeah. of thing. So for coffee outside, just like coffee inside, at home, the coffee is up to you. Bring your favorite roast and grind it just before you leave, or bring a portable hand grinder if you must. So that one was like a Helix. It's a pour-over device, and then this is also a pour-over device. But the nice thing about this little GSI clip-on, it's got a name, clip-on pour-over, is that it does, you don't have to use a filter. It's just built in. You can just rinse it out. Just put some inside of your cup. Like so. You like strong coffee? Yes. Good. Lots of people do this coffee outside thing. It's kind of trendy now, I think, especially on bikes. I think some people call it coffineering, which is a funny name for it. Um, you don't have to, have to do it when you're biking, obviously. I mean, the other day I took a hike with a friend and brought all this stuff in a backpack, and we just made coffee outside for us, and that was nice too. But I like coffee and I like biking, so combine the two, and it's a win for me. 
for me, I feel like it, it makes almost a destination out yeah. of it, out of the ride. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I like to do it midway, midway through the ride too, so that the coffee kicks in, I guess, instead of just at the beginning or at the end. But this location is really nice. It's just a good place to reflect and meditate and just kind of get away from the city. Even though you're in the middle of the city, you don't really feel like it. It's on the White River. It's in a little park in uh, Broad Ripple. And there's benches and leaves and trees. It's under a weeping willow tree, which is really nice. It's just really picturesque. The river's just, right now, I mean, it's just gently flowing and there's some ripples, little whitewater ripples down to the left. So the best way to tell this is done on this kettle is just basically, I just watch for the, the condensation and the steam to start coming out of the spout. It doesn't whistle or anything. I think it's kind of starting to steam a little bit out there. Yeah, we'll give it a shot. That's probably hot enough. So this one, this this particular pour-over one is the one that doesn't have a paper filter. So it, the coffee runs through faster, which doesn't seem like a good thing, but it still tastes really good. You just want to pour it slowly in a circular motion. I've never been a barista or anything like that, but just from what I've read and seen. It looks hot. Yeah, it's certainly steaming. And these are double-walled uh, titanium cups, so they won't burn your hands either. You can hold them and... Yeah, this might be just enough water, actually. I brought my own half and half because I oh, <laughs> really one of those. Don't, yep, I really gotcha. don't enjoy coffee without it. <laughs> oh yeah, that looks good. Oh yeah, the temperature's great. Isn't it? Yeah, it's really good. I'm usually not a sipper. I did that for the, for the <laughs> microphone. My dad, on the other hand, is a sipper. He sips everything. He just. All right. Cheers. Yeah, that's nice. Decent, huh? Yeah. Coffee is probably my one of my favorite things about camping. <laughs> so yeah. I don't know why I've never really thought to bring coffee out on a hike, you know, coffee making supplies out on a hike. I, I sometimes bring it when we're commuting and traveling. Uh, you know, instead of stopping at a coffee shop or something, I'll just have it in the back of the car and make it. And... Yeah, I'm always pretty coffee self-sufficient when I travel. Yeah. Like I bring my own Me too. setup. <laughs> oh, yeah, this is great. And if I have time, uh, a lot of times I'll stop at a, like a bakery or something and bring along a pastry or something to go with it and just to make the event a little bit more special. Yeah. And there's, there is a group up here in Indianapolis that I think it's Indianapolis Coffee Outside or something, but I've met with them a few times and had coffee uh, outside with the group. So it's, it's organized. I think they do it once a month, all year round. But uh, it's been kind of a solo thing for me. So you spend a lot of time outside. Is it usually biking somewhere? Usually, yeah, not always. We also do a lot of hiking and uh, camping, but if I can combine biking with hiking and camping, uh, then it's it's a win because uh, I really like enjoy riding my bike. So would you say that some of your interest in in doing coffee outside or even just camping and outdoor stuff is, uh, do you like gear? Yeah, 
Yeah, I'd say uh, you probably noticed why you asked that question. That I'm definitely a, a gearhead. Uh, I'm always looking at for another piece. I mean, there's three different coffee making devices right here, and at home we have even more. And I'm always looking for new bags for biking and bikes. You know, you can only ride one at a time, but <laughs> I do like having choices. I follow a lot of people, I think, on Instagram that test gear and do things like that. So I could be fun to get into that yeah that would be dreamy yeah yeah i think so too okay so let's let's go through all of the things that you have to have so water is definitely an essential and coffee and then and a stove you definitely want to have your stove and your fuel sometimes i've gotten out here and forgotten my fuel and some kind of device to light it so whether it's a lighter or this little uh, fire starter stick thing and then a pot to boil the water in and then you want just something to make your coffee whether it's a pour over or these aero presses are really popular can't get much more simple than just a simple pour over then yeah, uh, yeah then pour, pour over is definitely my favorite method at this moment if you're really hardcore you know you bring you bring the whole beans and <laughs> put your beans in here and use this little burr grinder and and then the coffee just comes down into here. Yeah, and then if you're me, you would have to bring your little jar of half and half. Yes. <laughs> but the cup is also pretty important. One time I did I also forgot my cup and I tried to make a pour over with like a plastic bottle that I found, which is kind of gross, but the bottle seemed pretty clean. So, but it didn't work. It 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 worked, but it blew over when I was trying to make it. And I was trying to take a picture of, of it while I was making it but to prove how clever I was being. <laughs> and it, it didn't work out. But I, I confessed in the post that I made that it didn't go as smoothly as it all looks in the photos. Well, that was a very good cup of coffee. And this is definitely the perfect day for it. So there you go. Coffee outside. Grab your coffee and your gear before you head out on your next ride or hike. Find a sweet spot and brew yourself a cup. It's especially nice in chilly weather. Enjoy. Little clips for the bag. Just these clips are made just so that the bag won't bounce out. And it's, oh. You just snap right so on. it is made for it's literally this made for this basket. basket. Yeah. Oh wow. Check our website to find River Bailey's checklist for everything you need to make your own coffee outside. EarthEats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to look for us on social media. You'll find us on Facebook and Twitter at EarthEats and on Instagram at Earth underscore Eats underscore WFIU. EarthEats team includes Ayoban Binder, Chad Bouchard, Mark Chilla, Abraham Hill, Taylor Killo, Josephine McRobbie, Daniel Orr, the IU Food Institute, 
Harvest Public Media, and me, Renee Reed. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Earth Eats is produced and edited by Kate Young, and our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Georgia O'Connor, Alyssa Weiss, everyone at Mother Hubbard's Cupboard, and River Bailey. Production support comes from insurance agent Dan Williamson of Bill Rush Insurance, offering comprehensive auto, business, and home coverage in affiliation with Pekin Insurance. Beyond the expected. More at 812-336-6838. Bill Brown at Griffey Creek Studio, architectural design and consulting for residential, commercial, and community projects. Sustainable, energy-positive, and resilient design for a rapidly changing world. Bill at GriffeyCreek.studio. And Elizabeth Rue, enrolled agent providing customized financial services for individuals, businesses, and disabled adults, including tax planning, bill paying, and estate services. More at personalfinancialservices.net. Thank you.